Happy Easter. One of my favorite Easter traditions um, is that call and response that believers have been using for centuries. And it's, it's called the Paschal greeting, right? Pascha is a, a term that like, is derived from the Feast of Passover, the Paschal greeting. And uh, it's sometimes uh, used in liturgical service, services, but uh, Christians all over the world are saying it to each other this morning. It has its origins in Luke 24, which is incidentally one of our texts for today. Some of you have been doing it in the lobby. I heard you, so you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, but if you're not familiar, I want to explain it to you so that we can all do it together this morning, because this is my favorite thing, right? So it goes like this. First, I'm going to say, he is risen, and then you all together are going to say, he is risen indeed. And then you say back to me, he is risen and I'll respond to you. Do you guys want to try it? Are you ready? You see, see what's going on here? Okay. He is risen. He is risen, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh my goodness. What, what a wonderful day for us to be together. I, I, can barely, like, I can barely follow just that worship and that celebration of God's furious love that, that just culminates in this day for us, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Oh my goodness. So you guys are really good at that. Thank you for humoring me. So it is Easter. This is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus three days after his crucifixion. And we love to celebrate this story. So we're going to start today by looking at the passage in Luke where he is risen was proclaimed for one of the first times. And that's Luke 24, like I mentioned. So if you want to turn with me there where the words will be on the screen behind me so that you can follow along. So this, this story, this is happening after the crucifixion. And it's after the resurrection too, but the disciples didn't know that yet. They didn't know what was happening. So two, two of Jesus' followers, not necessarily one of, the, uh, one of the 12 or the 11 at this point, two of his followers are walking down a country road. And starting in verse 15, we read this. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up, And walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And then I think Jesus, like, he kind of messes with them. Like, I wonder when I read this story, does he have trouble keeping a straight face? Like, is he kind of a little bit giggly or something? He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And the disciples stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them, named Cleopas... He said, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? How do you not know what is going on? What do you mean, what are we talking about? And Jesus, like, I just, I can see the twinkle in his eye. What things? What are you talking about? About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They had this fantastical story. Our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us that they had seen an angel 
a vision of angels who said that he was alive. That's what they said. So some of our companions went to the tomb and they found that it was just as the women had said. But hear the disappointment here. They did not see Jesus. And so Jesus speaking says to them, how foolish are you? And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That is a conversation I would have liked to have been a part of. But as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as though he was just going to continue on his way and, and go farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in and he stayed with them in the spot where they were going to lodge. And when they sat down at the table with him, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it and began to give it to them. And that's when it happened. Their eyes were opened. And what happened? They recognized him. They recognized him. And then, messing with them again, he disappeared from their sight. Like, poof. Like, also something I would have liked to have seen. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and he opened up the scriptures to us? Didn't something inside of us know something? So they got up at once and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those that were that that were with them. They were assembled together. When they got there, they heard the other disciples saying, it's true. It's really true. The Lord has risen and he's appeared to Simon. And so then those two told the others what had happened along the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Two words I want you to hold on to in your mind as we go on today from this passage. One is the word recognize. And the other one is the word glory. Because you see, as we're celebrating Easter today, we're also finishing up a sermon series. We've been taking the Lord's Prayer and just taking it line by line and unpacking the meaning that's in each one of those phrases that we've prayed for years and years and centuries of the Christian faith. And it just so happened that today we came to the last line. And the last line reads, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. So we've talked many times about what the kingdom of God is. That's the rule of God, the state of affairs where God gets his way, where everything is as it should be, everything that he hoped that it would be when he created this world. And power is fairly self-explanatory, I think. But what about glory? What about glory? Glory is one of those church words that we use a lot, and I heard it all the time growing up. And, and it conjures up kind of, kind of this feeling inside of me of something that's like amazing and it's, it's fantastic about God and who he is. We sing songs. We sang some today that had that, that phrase in it. We ask God to show us his glory. We pray the prayer that he would be glorified through our life and through our actions. But what do we mean when we say that? What actually is glory? 
What is glory? Until a few years ago, I would have struggled to give you a definition. There's two main words in the Bible that are translated into our English word glory. One is the Hebrew kabod, which I'm probably saying wrong, but that's okay. And the Greek word is doxa. And like most Greek and Hebrew words, the definitions are multifaceted. Okay, lots of layers there. And I'm no Bible scholar. I'm no Bible scholar. But what I do know is that in these other languages, the, the, the meanings are so much richer. Our English words are often blunt and dull in comparison. But as far as these definitions are concerned, here's what I want to zero in on today. Kabod, the Hebrew word, refers to glory and honor, including the honor that has to do with reputation. Reputation. And doxa carries with it a connotation of opinion, judgment, our view of another person, or an estimate of them, whether good or bad. So remember, a few moments ago, I asked you to remember two words from our our text in Luke. And one was glory. We've just been talking about that. What was the other one? Recognize. You better recognize. Because when we refer to God's glory, we refer to the characteristics of God that allow us to recognize him. The characteristics of God that allow us to recognize him. But it's very important to keep in mind that we, like the disciples that were traveling on the road to Emmaus, sometimes we have a problem with our perception that prevents us from recognizing God. And that's in part because our minds are conditioned to think of him in certain ways or to not think of him in others. Like those disciples on the road, they they didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't expect to see him there. They didn't know that he had been resurrected. They had no framework for that, and so they didn't, they didn't recognize. And depending on the framework or mindset that you and I are operating out of, we may not perceive God. We may not recognize him because we have a misunderstanding of what his glory really is. So think of the children of Israel when they were in the desert. When they traveled, after they had left Egypt, God's glory appeared to them as a cloud in the daytime, and it was a pillar of fire in the night. That was how they recognized that God was physically with them. They had these like, wow, I can't even imagine. And when they stopped and they camped at the base, base of Mount Sinai, like the fire and the cloud, that all settled on top of the mountain. And so that's how they knew that God's presence was there. His glory was there. But even though the Israelites recognized God, they were afraid. They were afraid. They were terrified. They told Moses they didn't want to talk to God. They said, Moses, you go up there. You see what he says. We don't want to talk to him. We'll die. You go do it. But contrast that with the way that Moses responded when he knew that God's presence was there. When he recognized God, there's a very interesting encounter in Exodus 33 that I want to look at. Moses was talking with God, as was common for him to do. That's an important point. He had a history of intimate dialogue with the Heavenly Father. 
Moses was talking to God. And basically what he's telling God is, I don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to go with these people and do the thing that you've asked us to do if you're not going to go with me. Like, you have to be there or I'm not going to go. And God says, yeah, like, he'll go. He's going to go with. He'll be with Moses every step of the way. And then Moses asks God this this fascinating question, I think, for the context of this. It's in Exodus 33, chapter, or, uh, chapter 33, verse 18. Moses says, now show me your glory. And really even more fascinating than the question that Moses asked, more fascinating to me is God's response. In the very next verse, verse 19, the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Moses asked God to show him his glory. Show him the majesty and the radiance of everything that made God, God. The characteristics by which he could be recognized and known the way he wanted to be recognized and known. And what did God say? He said, I will show you my goodness. That should blow our minds. This means everything. Because this is not the first thing that most people think of. When they think of the glory of God or the things that make him recognizable. Many people, and certainly most people who are outside of faith, do not recognize God as he wishes to be recognized. They think he is angry and distant, unapproachable, untouchable, and terrifying. They think of him in terms of his wrath and his judgment, and they, like the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai, are afraid. I spent many years at the base of that same mountain. A long time camped out there. Because I knew the condition of my own soul, I I could see clearly my own brokenness and my own shame, and my utter inability to do anything, one single thing, to straighten myself out. I was once afraid of God myself. It helped meeting Jesus. It helped meeting him. Because Jesus was the rescuer. He was the one who died to pay the price of my admission into God's presence. But do you know what? It still felt like a party that I didn't belong at. Like I used somebody else's ID to sneak into the club. Not that I know anything about things like that. But. Because Jesus might be my friend, but I was still pretty sure his dad didn't really like me. But let me show you something. This little verse that's tucked into Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 1 and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 says, In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, which is where we're living now, 
He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Now, now check out verse 3. Verse 3. This is another mind-bender if we get a hold of it. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Exact representation. Jesus clued us into this truth when he said in John 14, 9, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So what I would suggest to you this morning is that we have to get away from this narrative that Jesus saved us from the Father. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The narrative that Jesus saved us from the Father. The idea that God was so angry with people, so disgusted with them that he could barely tolerate their existence. But Jesus kind of talked God into holding off on smiting us until he could go do the thing on the cross. And God let him take our place, but it was kind of like, you know, when one sibling takes the spanking, takes the fall for their brother or sister, you know, for something that they didn't do, but they let mom and dad think that it was them so they can spare, you know. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't want you to, everybody's getting all nervous and heresy and whatever. God, Jesus did sacrifice himself to save us. He did. He sacrificed himself to save us. But it's sin that he saved us from, not God. And from the very first bite of that forbidden fruit that unleashed sin as a force in this universe, God the Father has been working to rescue us from that curse as well. First, he did that through imperfect covenants that were made with individuals and nations. And then finally, through this new covenant that was secured by the death and the resurrection of his son that we are gathering to celebrate today. But make no mistake, the reality has been consistent throughout history. God's glory has always been his goodness. Always. But again, the perception of this has been cloudy. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, and we don't need to turn there, but Paul says that there was a veil between the glory of God and the human ability to perceive it. And in the case of Moses, at one time, he he had to wear a literal veil because he had spent time with God, and God's glory was so, like, stunning, shining off of his face that the people around him couldn't even look at it without, you know, it was blinding. So he he had to cover it, a literal veil. Have you ever had the thought, like I have, that if God would just appear to us in some kind of physical form that we could see, that it would solve all the problems that we have with doubt, atheism, and all of that? Do you think, like, why doesn't he just show himself? You think that would solve all the problems, but it doesn't. It doesn't fix it. The Israelites saw him physically manifested, and they were not only terrified, but they didn't find it any easier to obey him than you and I do. 
And I love the story in one of the gospels where God spoke audibly from the sky, like he said words and people could hear them. But some of the people that were standing around, they were like, oh, it's thunder. Is it supposed to rain today? Like they, they didn't recognize him. And Jesus, he was God in the flesh. He did appear in physical form. And he went unrecognized by most. And not only that, but they killed him for the ways in which he did try to make God recognizable. And so the glory of God continues to be hidden from plain view in our day. But just like then, just like then, there are hints of it for those who have eyes to see. Psalms tells us, for instance, that the heavens declare the glory of God. And I think most of us could identify with the feeling of seeing a beautiful sunset or having the opportunity to sit under a starry sky out in the country away from the city lights. And you look up and and there's like something inside you that, that knows that there's something amazing and there's something beautiful. And it feels like joy and, and awe and wonder and peace and all of these wonderful things wrapped up into one. As we soak in that beauty that exists in nature, there's something incredible there. We recognize that there's something sacred within that beauty. So the heavens declare the glory of God. But really, the primary mechanism by which God wants to reveal his glory and make himself recognizable in this day and age is through his children. And that's through you and me. Actually, that was his plan from the beginning, wasn't it? Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply and replicate his image throughout the entire earth. And when God called Abraham, he told him all the people of the world will be blessed through your offspring. And Romans 8 tells us that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope... That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The glory that will be revealed in us is what will make God recognizable to those around us. Or not. Or not. We can choose to misrepresent him. We can choose to perpetuate the image of him as angry and distant and unapproachable. I think sometimes church culture specializes in this kind of thing. We can show God as angry and distant and difficult to please. We don't always have the best awareness of the ways in which we are doing this. We don't. But it shows up in our everyday actions 
and our attitudes toward those that are around us. When we're harsh with our family members, when we're impatient with our cashier or our server, when we're dismissive of a friend that's hurting because we're just too busy that day and we don't stop. It shows up in the way that we express ourselves and our opinions in public, at work, on Facebook. When we throw hatefulness around, we misrepresent God. It shows up when we draw lines between those who are in and those who are out, both in society and especially in the church. We communicate to those around us that God is harsh, he is impatient, and he is exclusive. But that doesn't have to be the case. That doesn't have to be the case. We can choose to represent him well. The way he would want to be known. To be, as the Bible says, Christ's ambassadors. To bear his image well. And by doing so, have an answer to that prayer that we pray. God, would you be glorified through my life? And what does this look like? This looks like service. Like foot washing on the Thursday before he died. It looks like humility. Considering others better than ourselves. It looks like kindness. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It looks like love. It looks like not holding people's sins against them, just like Jesus does not hold our sins against us. At the end of the day, it looks like Jesus. And if it seems impossible to you that you could live like Jesus in this world with all of its pain and its struggle and its ugliness and its awfulness, if you think, there's just no way Let me offer you this reminder. I really wanted to read this whole chapter because this chapter is like the most amazing articulation of the gospel, I think, in all of scripture. It's in, in Colossians 1. So that's your homework for today. Go home and read Colossians 1. But at the end of the chapter, in verse 26, Paul tells us that the gospel is the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it's now disclosed... To the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, which is everybody, you know, at this point now. Everybody gets to know about the mystery of the gospel. He's chosen to make known the glorious riches of this mystery. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of of glory. Because Christ is in us, we have everything we need to accomplish this task. Christ in us is our hope that we can glorify God. That we can die to ourselves as he did. 
and that we can be raised to new life as he was. That we for ourselves can recognize God as he wishes to be recognized. We can see him for who he is, his goodness, and all of the things that are hidden from plain view. We can see those things. We can recognize him. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, he told Moses. And on this Easter morning, just like every day, but especially on this day, I am thankful. I am so thankful that I am one on whom God has chosen to have mercy and to have compassion. And it is the desperate cry of my heart and my desperate prayer for us as a church that we would make that fact known, that we would make that recognizable to those around us. I want to represent him well, and I want to communicate to every person that I come in contact with that they also are a person on whom he chooses to have mercy and on whom he chooses to have compassion. So here's the, here's the big ask for today. The big ask. If you're here today and you feel like you are far from God for whatever reason, you feel like he's distant and, and you are afraid or, or you have been told, you have understood that narrative that Jesus saved us from a wrathful God. And if you're listening to my definition of God as good and his glory as good, and, and that's just so far from what you have ever known. I just, I want to ask you if just for a moment this morning, just for a moment, can I ask you to lay that aside and just consider the possibility that that may, that, that that may be true. God loves you. He doesn't just love you. He is crazy about you. Like so crazy that he watched his son launch the wildest rescue mission that ever existed in the history of humankind. Just for the chance that you would experience him like Moses did as a friend. Just for the chance. Like, he didn't even know if we would say yes. He didn't know if you would want him back. But just for that chance, he was willing to give up everything that he held dear. That's good. He's so good, and he loves you so much. Not the person next to you in your chair, although he does love them too. But you. Just consider that with me this morning. And if you're here today and you are already a follower of Jesus, especially if you're one that prays that prayer that God would be glorified through your life, I want to ask you to consider how are you making him recognizable? How do you represent him in your world? When people see you, do they see God's goodness? Is that what they would say? His kindness, those things by which he wants to be known. Is that what you're representing? 
Ask God to make you aware of where you're doing this well. Because we should be, we should be pleased. We should celebrate the ways that we're representing him well. But we also need to be aware of the places where we have room to grow. And all of us have to remember all the while that the only hope that any of us have is to tap into the resources of Christ in us. So through his death and through his resurrection that we celebrate today came the hope of glory, came the hope that we could make him recognizable in our world.